we were aware of how difficult and devastating the conditions are for artists so much of the time. And that despite that, in the context of South Africa and Johannesburg, we have the most astonishing output. And so as two artists ourselves, being interested in making a space that wasn't an institution, but that was a home for artists and for making and was a space that we would want to desperately be in ourselves. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Professor Christoph Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Bronwyn Lace, perhaps best known as the animateur and now co-director of the Center for the Less Good Idea in Johannesburg, but also a visual artist with specificity, responsiveness and performativity as central concerns in her practice. After graduating with a BAFA from the Witt School of Arts in 2004, Bronwyn has developed a combination of an introspective, process-led studio practice and a gregarious, collaborative communal practice in Johannesburg. She has also co-initiated, together with her partner, Marcus Neustetter, an art-science collaborative community activist project in the Northern Cape. This was presented in a film and a book, which they co-published in 2013, called My Room at the Center of the Universe. In 2016, she joined William Kentridge in establishing and animating the Center for the Less Good Idea, the dynamic interdisciplinary arts incubator in Maboneng in Johannesburg. Bronwyn is now based in Vienna, Austria, but continues to play an active role in the center as the co-director, where she's heading up the development of an academy and the center's engagement with an international artistic research project, all of which we will discuss in this podcast. Bronwyn, welcome. Great pleasure to see you again, even if it is just virtually. Let's start with just the background, the Center for the Less Good Idea, how it started and the original intentions for the project. Yeah, thanks, Christo. It's great to be here and exciting to talk with you about this. For me, it started with a phone call in early 2016 from William's studio with a request to meet him for tea. I had no idea what the context was about. William was not somebody that I knew personally. Obviously, we'd been in the same room and I was very well aware of who he was in his practice. So it was very curious to me to receive this call. And late that week, I met him for tea and he expressed that he'd recently come to a realization that He was interested in starting some kind of a foundation, and he asked me what I thought that might look like and whether I thought it was something Johannesburg needed right now. Of course, it was something that was enormously exciting to me, and I immediately understood that the reason William had approached me was because of the role that I had played um, since 2010 in the makeup of Maboneng as a cultural precinct in the context of downtown East End of Johannesburg. As an artist who, when I was a student in the early 2000s, I had sort of lived in buildings in and around that area in a sort of work-live way and in a pretty sort of unstructured way. But a part of the city that I was particularly dedicated to and that then 
my partner and fellow artist Marcus Neustädter and I had bought an apartment, situated our studios there and sought to activate the spaces and the streets with a sort of cultural, creative focus, building a community around us, I guess. So William was aware of my role in that and and I guess my passion for it. And he has his own studio there. And in fact, I think we can attribute a lot of the momentum of Maboneng as a cultural precinct, as a space that was initially certainly about a rejuvenation from the sort of 2008 period up until around 2016 when he approached me to the fact that William had situated one of his big studios there and the developers and people involved in the rejuvenation of that part of the city were very much leveraging off of William's reputation. So it wasn't something that I think up until that point William was actively involved in and I sometimes look at the formation of the Centre for the Less Good Idea, at least in the purchasing of the spaces that William's been doing from 2016 onwards in the dedication to the Centre as a, a sort of reverse monopoly where, you know, these are spaces that he's purchasing and giving back to the arts and affording artists who can't otherwise afford spaces in this part of town, which is so quickly through a kind of rejuvenation project, also become a gentrification project and has also seen a kind of collapse in the last few years from a sort of commercial perspective. So, yeah, so back to that conversation. He said to me, what would it look like? Would I be interested to work with him? And initially it was, I think, as a kind of a better informed and more sensitized estate agent in a weird way. But quite quickly, we realized there was a rapport between us. There were very interesting concepts that we were wanting to activate. I obviously had a lot of energy for the project and wanting to see it come to life. And so at a certain point, William asked me if I would come on board and take the responsibility of activating and running the space. Already from that first meeting, the key seminal words that rung out between us were interdisciplinary, collaborative, process-focused, risk-taking, being really encouraged, a space to test new ideas, a space for artists to be given the benefit of the doubt, a space that wasn't seeking to compete with the existing platforms that Johannesburg has to offer, but that was really focused on what it is that the artist needs and how the space could build itself around that. And so that was the beginning. You know, I've often heard that example, William has spoken about it often, that the name, the very striking name, Centre for the Less Good Idea, comes from a Tswana proverb that if the good doctor can't heal you, try a less good doctor. Was there a therapeutic intention Was the idea of the center based on an idea or a diagnosis of the art scene in Johannesburg, that it needed some kind of a therapeutic intervention, a less good doctor? Yeah, I remember the moment vividly when we were walking through an old shell of a building that was possibly going to be something that we were interested in 
Duck William might purchase and turn into the centre for the less good idea. We were still stuck in the kind of brick and mortar phase of what the centre was. And I say that deliberately because in the onset, we were sort of looking for a property and, you know, it had to be double volume and had to be this and it had to be that. And can it fit a piano through the doors and has it got good acoustics and what is going to be spent on making it into the centre And yet in these walks through these buildings, all in the kind of proximity of Jeppistown city and suburban, the east end of Joburg, so that William was close to them, both by home and by his studio, we were discussing and dialoguing and dreaming about what the centre could do. And so William shared with me Sol Plyke's proverb. And I remember him saying he wished he had the capacity to say it as it was in Sechuana or, or Setswana. But when it's translated into not really its European equivalent as an idiom or a proverb, but the direct translation goes, if the good doctor can't cure you, find the less good doctor. And it was immediately its humor, its clumsiness, But also its kind of accuracy around process was immediately intriguing. It was at a time when, you know, we were musing about titles and I kept coming up with atrocious titles like fail-safe and things that sounded like insurance or tire adverts. So that was very much the beginning of it, but also a kind of recognition of the role that Sol Plyke, as a great thinker, philosopher, writer, translator, might play in the life of the centre. It was already apparent. William was already... So many of Sol Plyke's translations exist in the rubrics that William makes using his lapis lazuli ink on the encyclopedic paper, these collections of words that he calls kind of peripheral thinking, you know, words that sit in a drawer until you suddenly ink them up on paper and they sort of gain attraction and a profundity to them. It seemed quite clear to us that, that we would draw on that. And the less good idea is about, I don't think we've ever particularly been focused on the healing, but in time, or perhaps subconsciously, we were aware of how difficult and devastating the conditions are for artists so much of the time. And that despite that, in the context of South Africa and Johannesburg, we have the most astonishing output. And so it was about, as two artists ourselves, being interested in making a space that wasn't an institution, but that was a home for artists and for making and was a space that that we would want to desperately be in ourselves. And, you know, I'll never forget in one of the meetings, William saying to me, I'm not interested in proposals and I'm even less interested in reports. I trust that if artists are in the space with one another, that what they seek to create overrides any of the sort of proof or evidence that art is valid or good for society. And after those initial arrangements, meeting and planning with William, finding the space, your first season launched in March 2017. What was that like? (laughs) What was the lead up to that? What did you learn from actually physically doing a season in Maboneng in the space with artists? 
I mean, it was unbelievable. It was intense. It was a baptism of fire. It was taking a visual artist like myself who had been working in a very particular way, a lot of the time in a kind of isolated studio practice. And when working communally, which I also did, when working in a kind of a responsive, reactionary, site-specific way, still leading the conceptual framework of what the project was about. And so I was suddenly plunged back into the world of performers and recognized the deep collaborative necessity and the communal thinking, the collective making that happens in those kinds of environments and how enormously valuable it was just to me in my person, in my intellectual, emotional, psychological understanding of self and then in relation to the city and beyond and even my own practice. I often think about a kind of moment in the first workshop of the first season, which happened in late 2016. We'd sort of gathered this momentum. We'd had an opportunity to invite some of South Africa's most astonishing people, people like Lebohang Meshile and her you know, being the sort of mother and queen of poetry and spoken word. Gregory Mangoma as this dancer choreographer who was exploding all over the, it still is, all over the world. Dominic Gumede and his astonishing capacity as a director and writer who had produced a number already of award-winning pieces and plays. So, you know, you've got this collection of people and with them, they are bringing people that we haven't met before, but who also just simply continually surprise and continually invent and bring just levels and layers of making that I had not been exposed to. And I thought I knew what the kind of cultural creative scene looked like in Johannesburg. And I realized how unbelievably siloed I had been in my own practice. And so I just remember a moment in the workshop of the first season, there were about 80 people between the spaces at the center. There was just action in every corner. We had invited the Hillbrow Boxing Club to join us. George Corsi was was leading a, a boxing session. Percussionists were riffing off of that. Dancers were interweaving with it. Lighting designers and cinematographers. The astonishing production team that accompany William in all of his work, you know. And I think there is William Kentridge and then there is the Kentridge Studio. And there are people who have been his colleagues and his collaborators for 30 years who embody the essence of what is so astonishing about his practice, which is this capacity to work collectively and to collaborate and to incubate and birth things out of initial ideas and to really test then the secondary and beyond the thinking that happens through doing. And so this was all happening around me. I was witnessing it and responsible for giving it, for holding it. And I started to recognize that I had a capacity to hold. And I was interested in the finer details and the bigger picture all at once. So that was very exciting. But it was that there was a sort of deja vu kind of dream state feeling in the late afternoon as I looked around, everything slowed down. And I realized that this was something I had always yearned for, even as a child, even when I was doing theatre as a child and involved in musical theatre and singing and choirs and, 
you know, realized that when I started my degree as a fine artist, I also interviewed for a BA Dramatic Arts. And the selection between fine art and drama happened simply because I preferred the conversation with the art professor. You know, it was as mundane as that, really. And it was less about me and more about the person who was talking to me and how I was, I guess, affirmed in that moment. So being able to come back more than a decade later and find myself immersed in the performative world and recognize the significance of it, that was astonishing and continues to be. These processes are now... I must say over the last year with the onset of the pandemic and physical distancing and measures, as well as my having moved from Johannesburg to live in Vienna with my family, I mourn that energy in the room because I think it is a revolution that offers some extraordinary solutions to the big unanswered issues and problems we have at the moment. The critic Rosalind Krauss has very famously described William's practice as post-medium, as a post-medium condition. Would what has been happening at the centre be for you an instance of the post-medium being translated into a broader social palette? Absolutely. I think 100%. It's also incredible to see how from people who are just coming into their careers out of their degrees or who have come from sort of peripheral spaces that have otherwise not been given much attention to people who have enjoyed enormous international careers. When in the room and in that condition, William included, we're all in a state of not knowing and there's an extraordinary invention that happens with that. And I think it's incredible to see again and again how even those who have very powerful and seen careers say that they get forced and pushed into smaller and smaller boxes of repetition. And when given the opportunity, they desperately want to be outside of those silos and those boxes. That absolutely, I think, post-medium is something that would go a long way to start talking about the magic that happens in the room. Now, you're four years into the centre with two big seasons every year. How has it evolved or changed? What lessons have you learnt about managing such a dynamic and unpredictable space? What about the confluence of egos? Yes, it's fascinating. It is this own little microcosm that makes you think about the way that society works, the reason maybe organizations fall into particular traps. You know, we had an awareness about this from the onset. Uh, The reason I sort of steered away from and rejected being called a director, for example, was because I had no interest in sort of determining what the creative output um, or the direction of the center would be. I would be loath to say my imagination, as wild as it could be, would have had any of the significance as what the center has so far done. But at the same time, we've used naming as a tactic. We've deliberately not called the person responsible for the momentum at the center 
the director. We've called them the animateur. And we've worked around sort of trying to avoid certain patterns that happen typically in organizations. But naturally, we've had to grow. And so what began as a conversation between William and I, and really initially in the first season, I had enormous support from William's personal studio and individuals involved in his project management were supporting and coaching and holding me as I was holding in due course, it became necessary, obviously, for me to start hiring people and to build a team around the center, which is now six of us. So it still remains a tight team. But even with six, you notice the dynamics become ever more complicated and complex. So there's a suddenly, you know, I'm not just running and making decisions and going on impulses. I'm having to learn communication skills that are over and above the dialoguing with the artists. It's also with the team. And it's exciting, but you very quickly notice that things do shift and they have to change. And I think it's, a, it's important that the person who has the responsibility and I think the honor of running the center as the animateur and the current animateur for the last two years has been Pala or Kiritsa Pala who has a vastly different approach to mine and gets a very different projects and results going you know as a result of that and I think that that's really important I think that I feel it's significant and important that the center for example builds in a, a regular handover of that kind of momentum giving and holding to different individuals as we then remain connected to the center but find ourselves again in new roles to fulfill. Because the formula and the habit is something that human beings will always fall to. And we have to work collectively to ensure that we don't slip into kind of formulaic approaches to what constitutes work from the center, for example, with the real understanding that formulas and what works can and does quite easily become a kind of gatekeeping. And this is what, if we as the center have the opportunity because of our funding coming from one man, which means a very light bureaucracy, and very little administrative work, which is an enormous gift. If we have that possibility, which most institutions and centers and spaces, platforms that hold the arts from education to actual showing and commercial projects, then we need to ask how we can avoid gatekeeping, how we can take risks, how we can afford to be wrong even in what we do, but how we can be testing thinking and ideas that can eventually populate and challenge the existing spaces who have such heavy bureaucracies and such heavy inherited structures to navigate. Yes, that certainly resonates with me and speaking from a very heavy bureaucratic institution, the Witz University and the School of Arts. What has struck me is the development of a strongly pedagogical orientation 
at the center? I mean, from 2020, this notion of the academy, the academy for the less good idea becomes apparent. What is that? What is being offered to, I presume, students who are part of the academy? And how does that relate to conventional arts teaching, as in the Witt School of Arts or UJ, University of Pretoria? How do you situate what you're doing with the academy? So I would say we're a bit cheeky with the term academy. There's no sort of, we can't offer a certification or qualifications. What we're wanting to talk about is that as the individuals, and there are over 500 people now who have worked with and through the centre, some in multiple ways and on multiple repeated levels and others once off, but we continue to notice these kind of potent learning opportunities that all of us are receiving degree upon degree of real in-depth gaining of both skill and knowledge. And so I was somebody who graduated in 2003 from the Witt School of the Arts. It was newly formed. It might have been 2004. But it had just been launched, really. It was in, in the midst of my degree. The promise of this interdisciplinary space that really afforded us as students an opportunity to work in a trans, inter, non-disciplinary way was one that I deeply yearned for. And sadly, one that I didn't actually experience. Now, that might be that it was the birth of the School of the Arts and there was a lot to be worked out still, logistically even. Uh, but having said that, when something is launched, you would think that it might be its most potent moment. And I don't think it was for lack of unbelievable effort and imagining and real commitment from the staff who had foreseen this for many, many years and had put it into motion. And certainly, I think just the culmination of the various departments in that part of the campus was significant and important and something I'm very grateful for. But what I was aware of at the center all these years later and in my continued kind of experience with various institutions was there was something different here. There was something authentically, actively, practically taking place that was in the moments we were there interdisciplinary. It was crossing of boundaries and borders. It was collapsing of forms and structures and hierarchies. It was really site-specific. So in our dialoguing and in our acknowledgement of that, of what we were finding ourselves in the midst of, was to say, well, how do we open this up to others? Absolutely to students. How do we supplement and give opportunity to students and faculty and people who work within the institutions who find these kinds of moments more rarely? How do we give them opportunity to test ideas that are being theorized or taught in the spaces? So how do we complement the, the existing educative structures in South Africa? 
And then how do we seek to identify some of the gaps that we're noticing? You know, we've structured a kind of mentorship program into the past two seasons, which we will finally perform all things going our way at the end of the year, season seven on the front of season eight. And in both seasons, there is a, a mentorship program. The first with Greta Giras, who is the longtime collaborator and essentially costume designer, but really the most astonishing artist who works alongside William and finds the costume and prop and look and feel solutions to all of his major theater and opera pieces. In season eight, it's working with Sabine Thiersen, who is his sonographer and set designer, the exhibition designer. What we've noticed at the center is that there is a shortage of that kind of skill and that depth of skill, that ability to invent and reinvent and break the rules from within those disciplines. There feels to be a lack of in South Africa. And I think what is sad about that is that it is the space where filmmakers and photographers and visual artists could be immersed within the performative. It is the space that invites disciplines that don't always understand themselves as part of a kind of performative world into that world. And we have no short of astonishing makers in the country, but it's about understanding the ways in which these things can be translated into practices that then are inherently collective and collaborative. You know, performance, what we felt was going to be a key feature and characteristic of the center because the performative in whichever discipline it sits demands a collaboration. It demands working interdisciplinary. Even if you're doing a one-man show on a soapbox, you need a lighting designer. You need somebody to press the recorder. You need to, you know, assistance in making the sound. It just naturally lends itself towards that. And so this is where our focus and joy has been at the center and where the academy hopes to extend it into opportunities for ourselves. So there are no prerequisites. We're not saying people have to be qualified in any way in order to gain access to the academy or to the center, really. It's more about what you bring. However, the distinction between the center and the academy from a programming perspective is that at the center, the core team, William included, Pala, Okiditsa Pala, myself, we are responsible for devising the provocations and selecting the first lead artists or what we've come to term curators of seasons. They then, as the curators of seasons and the lead artists, in response to the provocations, are asked to select and choose who they would like to work with often with us asking the question, who are those people you've wanted to work with that you've not been able to? What are those projects you've wanted to do that haven't been feasible or possible? And so those are often the starting points for artists. And with that, the kind of selection of the season grows, but it's by invitation. So the Academy is by application. We choose the mentors and we choose 
the kinds of projects that we're interested in pursuing. But what's necessary is that people apply with a very small and sort of short letters of interest, motivation, and in some cases with evidence of parts of their work. So that's the other goal for us with the Academy. It is to continue to extend the network of who is out there and how the centre can grow this deep kind of entanglement with all areas of creative producers in the country. So the Academy, depending on who is the mentor in the particular year, you've mentioned the costume designer, Williams costume designer, that would be the focus of the Academy for that year. And you would be selecting applicants on the basis of their interest in that field of practice. Yeah, that's right. So it's the mentorships are one component of the Academy. That's one kind of program that we have. We're defining anything that's happening at the center and that we're designing that we feel has a kind of a capacity to increase and deepen our understanding and knowledge and our learning as that which falls under the academy. So on the one hand, it's these mentorships. People apply, as you said, we put a call out, we describe what we're interested in doing. In fact, tomorrow, the next call goes out. This is to join Sabine. It's a four-week intensive mentorship for six artists in person situated in Johannesburg and six international artists who will be working virtually with Sabine. The, there's a series of sort of um, masterclasses that Sabine will give, and the title of the mentorship is Thinking in Cardboard. So Sabine brings the model and the miniature theater as what it is, which is an incredibly useful device to get thinking and understanding going between collaborators in the making of a piece or an exhibition, but also in where the model is more than the model, where the model itself becomes this miniature artwork and this holder and object which is in of itself um, a very significant piece of work and meaning. So that call goes out and then basically from July until we open in October, there's a combination of online classes, there's making, there's workshopping. And then importantly, there is a point that the mentees are immersed into the season. So the actual physical works being devised for season eight, in this case, curated by Bongile Zulu, with a provocation from the center of breath and mythology. And so that's as open as it is. Spongile has already selected a number of artists she's working with, she's devising with, they're testing ideas, they're writing for it, music is being composed, movement is being choreographed. And the mentees of the scenography thinking in cardboard workshop now have an opportunity to actually make for the pieces that are coming to life at the same time and are given dedicated space and production to do that. And so it's about the making, the practical, the physical, the felt, the embodied happening at the same time and sometimes with even more emphasis than the theoretical and the kind of academic or the underpinnings of meaning. And 
for the mentees on the academy program, what they'll take away from it is the hands-on experience, the engagement with a master in that area. Absolutely. They also take what they make. It's also about gaining an evidence of your practice. So the center has always focused on a very meticulous recording of everything that we do. And so our cinematographer, editor in the room, the writer on the wall who documents in writing everything that happens, the stills photographer who's capturing hundreds of process photographs, and the sound recorder all work collectively and collaboratively with each other and with the artists to represent the process and then what comes out of it. And this becomes tangible evidence for artists to gain entrance into new things, into new possibilities. It's so often that artists, even at a high level of production, don't have evidence of what they have done, particularly when it's ephemeral work. And so for a costume designer, for example, you can hold your costume afterwards and you could even take a photograph of it, but it's not going to translate unless you've got high quality footage and photography of the performers bringing it to life. The performers you responded to and made it for. That is at the end of the day, the artwork. And so in that instance, that is also another thing that the center does is give artists evidence of their thinking and their making. I think that's a tremendously important part. I've, I've been very impressed by that high-speed collaborative document, documentation that you managed to produce together with the productions themselves. And I absolutely agree with you. Certainly my experience as a performance photographer is constantly finding performers who don't get the representation of their performances at all. Quite often it's the organisers, the curators have all of that material, but it never gets to the performers themselves for their own use, for their own education. And so I really, really appreciate that about your approach. Another development which I've been very intrigued by is the engagement, and I know you've been leading this, with artistic research. And... In some ways, artistic research has been criticized as the academic appropriation of artistic practice. You know, artistic practice being forced to articulate what it does in terms of the research parameters of the university or the research institution. How do you understand artistic research? And tell us more about this project that you're initiating together with Octopus. Yes. The Octopus Program is situated here in Vienna at the Academy of the Applied Arts, which is called Angavanta, and is led and conceived of by a curator and designer who's a guest professor at the Angavanta called Bashak Shenova. And Bashak, I had the great luck in meeting in 2016 when I was doing a residency, a three-month residency here in Vienna, supported by the Ministry in Austria of Culture. And Bashak was fleeing Turkey during the coup and needing to find a safe haven and eventually decided to make her life here in Vienna. 
So that's where I met Bashak and began to understand what an astonishing curator she was and thinker and the kinds of projects that she had activated. From her position in Vienna and during this time, she then began a project called Cross Sections, which invited 20 artists from across Europe into a conversation, which she was able to manifest through multiple events and meetings and exhibitions in process. And so it resonated very deeply with what we were talking about and doing at the center. And, you know, I think the one space, Cross Sections, which I worked on for four years, and the Center for the Less Good Idea were really birthed at a similar time. And so there's deep intersections between them. But where Cross Sections has a sort of very visual art, contemporary, conceptual art background and links into research as the universities within Europe might understand it, artistic research, the center has a a, a different sort of premise as a performative space and obviously is very much located in and responding to the context of Johannesburg and South Africa. So it was Bashak who conceived of the Octopus Programme. And what I think is fascinating about it is that it invites 10 artists, many of whom are doing their PhDs or their doctorates, so it, and it gives credits towards that, but into a guided research program with her as curator, but also with each other to be really mirrors in the room to one another's practice, to share the processes of reading and thinking, and also where she, through her vast network, which is very impressive because it stretches across kind of, obviously from Turkey into Palestine, uh, areas of the Middle East into North Africa, and now through her relationship with me down into South Africa. But Bashak has also worked extensively with the Scandinavian region in Europe. So we have institutions from all of these spaces collaborating. And what I find fascinating about the program is that the artists who are invited to be guided in their research and to share their research with one another are as seminal and if not the the focus of the project as much as the institutions are, and as the institutions, in this case, the Center for the Less Good Idea, we are really challenged to reach out and collaborate, not just in a kind of formal, administrative or financial way, but to collaborate in the thinking about what it means to be an arts institution right now with other organizations who we wouldn't typically have a relationship to. In Johannesburg, for example, if you've been working in the arts for any amount of time, you've probably had interactions with various European institutions where there is a kind of cultural organization or space set up from Proelvizia to the Goethe Institute to the British Arts Council to Alliance Francaise and and the French Institute. That conversation, North-South, is one that is pretty well walked. And it's similarly important and one that we have to continue um, encouraging. But we don't have enough conversation with other parts of the world. And this is an opportunity, I see it, for the centre to not only afford two South African artists who have been chosen and who are working in this guided research programme, Nondomiso Nsimanga and um, Kim Reynolds, 
to be developing their research and their project and eventually in the course of next year be traveling to some of these spaces and actually held by the various institutions. But it also gives the Center for the Less Good Idea as an institution an opportunity to be co-thinking with spaces that we wouldn't otherwise have access to. So Saha in Istanbul, Publix in Sweden, the Palestinian Museum. What does it mean right now as whether we're big or small as institutes for the arts in this particular moment to be holding artists, to be encouraging research, what kind of practices, you know, are we holding people in the right way? Um, Are we affording opportunities to invent or are we unwittingly shutting opportunities down? And I think that that's what the Octopus Program is for the centre. Thanks. That's a very useful summary, Bronwyn. Another area, and this is taking us away from the centre for the moment and more towards your personal practice, I'm very interested to see that you and your partner, Marcus Newsetter, are reactivating or continuing pursuit of the art-science crossover, which I know in your practice dates back to work that you were doing around the observatories down in Sutherland and kind of engagements between this high-tech science project and surrounding communities. What are you doing now in terms of that art-science relationship? And could you talk more to what role you see art playing, art practice in that kind of engagement that really does cross boundaries and break through silos. Yeah, you know, I think some of my sort of richest experiences as an artist has been in dialogue with the sciences and with other disciplines. So the Sutherland project that Marcus and I did for nearly eight years, which finally manifests in a film and a book for educative purposes as an education resource, was in deep conversation on a continual basis with an astrophysicist, Carolina Ottmann, and a nuclear physicist, Kevin Govender. They brought their disciplines as much as we did. At the end of the day, though, it was a project about a small town in Sutherland and the ways in which the people of this town were affected by their historical, social, political, and economic context. So it was our particular approaches and ways of thinking and the languages that we had developed around our discipline that was very interesting as ways of entering how this project would sort of gain its own space within the town and hopefully have a life beyond the the four of us. It was a project that also taught us a lot about how difficult it is to work in an inter and cross-disciplinary way and how often these bridges that we were building between the disciplines could function for a time but quite quickly dissolved as soon as there was a changeover of personnel or there was a shift in a condition the bridges that had been established for moments disappeared and so when Marcus and I arrived in Vienna and started our new life just a a year and a bit ago here. We got in touch with a philosopher and evolutionary biologist who 
we also met and went to a few talks that he did back in 2016. And we started a conversation. Again, we pulled Bashak Shanova into this conversation as somebody who in her own practice as curator and designer has really done well to collapse the sort of structures that otherwise would divide individuals or organizations. She breaks the rules all the time. And I think that that's what's quite astonishing about her as an individual. So the four of us began a conversation about a third space, knowing that there are enormous uh, amounts of projects between the arts and the sciences, across the arts and the sciences that seek to bridge, to translate, to create connections. Also aware through, and I think certainly through Marcus's practice, which I've been more a kind of a witness to rather than a participant in, but Marcus has had a deep history with spaces like Ars Electronica, the Art Text Festival situated here in Austria and Linz, and other electronic art festivals like um, Chirotronica that we've attended over the years. And in, uh, I think it was 2018, Marcus was even the director of ICEA, which took the International Symposium for Electronic Arts that took place in Durban. Something that I was witnessing often when in these contexts and going to the talks, watching the art, listening to the research around art and science, is that the ideas are often unbelievable and actually very beautifully presented and very, very exciting. They expand your mind and they instill a deep curiosity in one. The technology and the media is also equally as powerful and something that is very intriguing. And so around it, there are these conceptual philosophical debates that are very stimulating. However, I don't think I can say I've often then met the artwork and felt as deeply sort of shifted or moved by it, particularly when I compare it with work in other sorts of spaces, you know, major exhibition shows or pieces of theatre that have had a sort of a time and a space to generate themselves. And so... I began to wonder what was happening there and began to notice also how, as an artist myself, when working with, let's say, a creative technologist or a scientist, somebody from a different discipline, I, I first off really struggle to express myself. I can speak, art speak, but whether it translates is another question. And so you realize how particular your language has become and your capacity to express yourself. But also, I think we tend to expect creative technologists to be the technical solution to something without any empathy for their process or understanding of what they're doing. Or, you know, you come across a scientific concept that is very intriguing, feels metaphorical or poetic, and then you, you sort of take it and use it for your own purposes. Does it add anything to the sciences in that instance? Does it further anything for the creative technologist? I think, of course, not all the time. There are astonishing examples in the world that we celebrate, but I think a lot of the time it doesn't. And I think the conditions to get to those astonishing works are quite particular. And I'm interested in finding out what those conditions might be. 
Similarly, I think that, you know, if you just invert the situation where scientists might be interested in working with artists, and this I've experienced firsthand too, is you're approached by a scientist, a biologist, a a physicist to do a collaborative project and you quite quickly realize that you are the aesthetic veneer. Your opinion is insignificant, really. And so we were interested now in this project, which we call The Zone, and which we've managed to receive some seed funding for, to incubate and think through as the four of us, an evolutionary biologist and philosopher, ourselves as visual artists and activists, and Bashak as a curator and a designer, to begin to investigate what a third space would be, a space that isn't the arts and it isn't the sciences, where we understand the walls and the structures that we come with that formulate and articulate our professions and our disciplines, but where we're seeking to be relieved of those spaces for a moment and to be co-thinking and manifesting within this third space. It may be a complete impossibility, but we're actively pursuing it with all that we've got and placing each other and ourselves in a really often very awkward, really unknown space. But already I'm finding that the context of the zone for the four of us is shifting my understanding of my own practice and of the things I've done in the past and therefore hopefully continue to do going forward. Definitely, the zone is a space to keep an eye on. So I will watch that with great interest. And of course, the ongoing developments and energy emanating from the center for less good idea, which I have to say is such an incredible resource and gift to Johannesburg and to the interdisciplinary South African and African art scene, that it's really wonderful that it's continuing and appreciate your role steering it with such calm (laughs) and panache that thank you very much for that. And also for this conversation and looking forward to continuing it in different ways into the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, thank you for initiating it. It's not the first time you've invited us in our various ways, artists and others at the center into WITS and to your space. I know that you're also a regular audience member and participant at the center, which is so important. You know, I think that that is it. At the end of the day, the networks is made up of individuals. And as you said, your personal photographs of so many of the performances that have happened in little festivals and in bigger spaces all over the country uh, become the kind of evidence that we need for ourselves and for the broader dialogues and contexts with the global art scene. So I so appreciate that. And I appreciate this podcast too and the Art Research Africa project coming out of it because it's extremely exciting to see the School of the Arts doing this. And I've thoroughly enjoyed what I've already listened to. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Bronwyn Lace, a visual artist and the co-director of the Centre for the Less Good Idea. 
The call for applications to the mentorship program, Thinking in Cardboard, is now open and will be open until the 18th of June. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.